verse 8. Yet I will leave some of you alive. When you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He who is, fat off, who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword. And he who is left and is preserved shall die of famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them, and you shall know that I am the Lord when their slain lie among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, wherever they offered pleasing aroma to all their idols. And I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate and waste in all their dwelling places, from the wilderness to Riblah, then they will know that I am the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Many of you know that I'm a voracious reader. So last week when I was visiting my mother in Iowa, and in an attempt to improve my teaching in adult Sunday school, I read this book by Tim Keller, Preaching. This week, upon my return, I started reading this book by Paul David Tripp called Reactivity. It's a book that's largely about our culture and how we respond in very reactionary ways to things that we don't agree with. Little did I know how much both of these books would help me in the preparation of this message. I consider myself a lifelong learner. I love to learn. For instance, one of the contemporary topics of interest to me right now is the behavior of multiple generations in the workplace. Anymore, you can easily find members of an organization who are baby boomers, generation Zers, and millennials, perhaps even those from the greatest generation as well. I am a baby boomer. With younger generations, that term now carries a pejorative connotation. Those of us who are 60 or older really don't want anyone referring to us with that negative term. I say something or do something that seems outdated to a younger person, and that person declares, boomer. I get it. As a young man, I poked fun at older generations. I can recall when I thought, th I thought 40 was older. Now 40 doesn't seem so old to me. In fact, the closer I get to 70, the younger that seems. Like those TV ads, I have become my father. <laughs> to that point, I'm astounded how quickly worldviews have evolved in even the last few years. In the preparation of this message, I composed a list of 17 statements 
which get to the heart of how much culture has changed in even my lifetime. I could have and I would have delivered those points with great enthusiasm and intensity. My convictions are strong. There was a lot of truth in those 17 statements. I am my father's son who would like some sanity to return to the world. However, a friend helped me see that the original intent of that sermon could have been construed as angry and condemning, focused more on what I'm against than what I'm for. So, I will be making none of those 17 statements. We pine for the good old days, don't we? Those of us who are of that age. But the good old days have come and gone. We must live in the here and now, working to expand the kingdom of God in times of the already, but not yet. What's a Christian to do in the face of these issues? Angrily berate people in the culture? How right it is for us to have Christian convictions, but how important it is to approach these issues as God would direct us, not as our emotions guide us. Seriously, let us first turn to God. He certainly has answers about issues of concern to him in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a fascinating book of the Bible. It's filled with many concrete and sensory images. Chapter one comes right out of the shoots with vivid and unusual vivids, uh, visions. Later, Ezekiel eats a scroll given to him by God. At one point, he's bound with cords. Eventually, God commands him to take some very interesting actions. Imagine Ezekiel lying on his left side for 390 days and his right side for 40 days. He ate unclean bread prepared over cow dung. He shaved his head and beard with a sword. At another point, God lifted Ezekiel between earth and heaven. And the prophet crawled with baggage through a hole in the wall. God prophesied that Ezekiel's beloved wife would die suddenly, and the Lord commanded him not to mourn her. I can't even imagine being obedient to that command. Later in the chronological Bible, we, re we read the famous passage in which dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones come to life. Who is this Ezekiel? He's both a priest and a prophet. His name means the strength of God or strengthened by God. God addressed Ezekiel 93 times as the son of man. The phrase used for Ezekiel essentially means he's a human being. Don't confuse that with how Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, as the Messiah. Ezekiel served during the same time as Daniel and Jeremiah. He was numbered among the people of God exiled to Babylon. According to commentators, Ezekiel was 30 years of age at this point of his ministry. The year was 597 BC. What were the problems in this prophet's time? God's people had suffered exile due to their own rebellious sin and the conquering of Israel by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. False prophets abounded promising more immediate delivery from exile. In contrast, God's prophet, Ezekiel, prophesied the truth, no matter how painful to him or to his listeners. 
When reading the book of Ezekiel, we learn that God's people had whored after idols. Whoa, strong words, whored after idols. God tells it like it is. We got snow idols in 2023, do we? Obviously, I'm being facetious. We chase after power and influence, prestige, possessions, vocational position, children, houses, vehicles, sex, fitness. The list goes on and on and on. Even good things like church activities can become idols. I turned to a commentator named Taylor for the etymology of the Hebrew word for idols here in Ezekiel. The word galilum is a favorite with Ezekiel, occurring no fewer than 38 times as against the nine other times in the rest of the entire Old Testament. Its derivation is uncertain, but it's quite likely a homemade word consisting of the vowels of the Hebrew word sikas, for which the dictionaries give the polite translation of detested thing, and the consonants of a noun meaning a pellet of dung. The final combination carries about as much disdain and revulsion as any word could do. Detested things. Maximum disdain and revulsion. Pellets of dung. As an English major, I can embrace those kinds of raw and sensory descriptions. It seems to me that we all go after pellets of dung. We think there's a promise in the idols, but the promises actually turn out to be empty promises. The most important question we should ask is this. Why did the people of Ezekiel's time, and why do people today chase after idols? In Ezekiel's time, Asherah promised fertility. The prophets of Baal promised rain in their showdown with Elijah. The promises of idols look so good. They're shiny pennies that attract our attention. Those in Israel had also built altars to false gods. Such was why God directed Ezekiel to prophesy against the mountains where these shrines were located at the time. I bet there's no altars to false gods in the United States. That would be wrong. Huge complexes hold thousands of people enthusiastically worshiping talented athletes, roaring cars, raucous rock stars, and swift tailors. See what I did there? Sorry, sorry, Swifties, lame joke, boomer. Why are we drawn so passionately to these activities? Are we amusing ourselves to death, as Neil Postman asserts in the book by the same name? As a result of this rampant false worship, God promised judgment through Ezekiel. Sword, famine, pestilence, desolation, waste. God said to Ezekiel, clap your hands and stamp your foot. I love that onomatopoeia. Remember that word? That, that, that word fascinated me when I was an English student in middle school. You know, not remember it. The words are concussive. And they're very sensory. Sounds great. That command apparently worked in Ezekiel's time. Today I can stand up and angrily <laughs> clap my hands or stamp my foot in response to the heresies of the culture. But what will that get me? I prefer a different biblical image in 2023. As followers of Jesus, 
we shine our light. When we shine our light, then they will know that I am the Lord. Do not miss that extremely important pronouncement in Ezekiel 6.10, as Rob read it. Those nine words comprise the title and the theme of this message. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Commentator David Guzik wrote, this is the first of 60 uses of this particular pronouncement in Ezekiel, showing that God worked in his judgments and his restorations to reveal himself to Israel and the world. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And God promised to stand by his remnant of faithful, obedient followers. Are there remnants of Christians in the U.S., South Carolina, Greenville, as with Israel and Ezekiel's time? Yes, of course. I certainly believe that Eastside Presbyterian is one of those remnants. This is a warm, friendly, welcoming, other-centered, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. The problems in our communities seem obvious, but the solutions and answers can either be combative or reconciling. We could view our situation either as a battlefield or a mission field. Today, I encourage the latter. The fields are ripe for harvest. To conclude, what can we do as that remnant? First of all, we must abide. When we abide, then they will know that I am the Lord. We must seek a deep, personal, intimate, abiding relationship with God. Which command of the law is the greatest, the Pharisees asked Jesus. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We too must remember that God alone is sovereign judge. We are not the ultimate judge. Even when we're frustrated and angry, we must choose to address all people and issues with gentleness and respect. That's a command from scripture. I know that's hard, but how will we attract families to our church or the body of Christ unless we have a reputation for addressing issues with gentleness and respect? At Eastside Presbyterian, let's be known for what we're for rather than what we're against. That doesn't mean we assimilate to or approve of ungodly behaviors of the culture. At the same time, we must not withdraw from the culture. Also, we must pray without ceasing, listening for the still, small voice of God. God manifested himself to depressed Elijah in a whisper, not fire, lightning, thunder or earthquake. Also, we must repent of our own sin. I must take the log out of my own eye before attempting to take the specks out of the eyes of those in the culture. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. Rather than chasing pellets of dung, let's chase after Jesus. We must identify and reject our idols, replacing them with Jesus. We must place God back where he belongs. Idols give nothing of eternal value. Jesus gives us everything of eternal value.
as the hymn writer asserted, be thou and thou only the first in my heart, O high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. And yet another lyricist proclaimed, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You may have all the world, give me Jesus. We must courageously engage people who are not following Jesus, even and especially when confronting challenging issues. Which is the second greatest commandment. Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We must love our neighbors. We must listen actively to those folks. We must build relationships with them to earn the right to speak the gospel to them in respectful ways. We must seek not to win arguments at the loss of relationships. I must follow Christ's example, choosing to love all others. Cheryl, my children, my grandchildren, friends, enemies, and those who persecute me. Praise be to Jesus when he's able to supernaturally put this love in my heart in the most difficult others to love. Let's act in winsome ways so that we might win some. We must ask good, non-threatening questions and expect others to give evidence, not just opinions or emotions for their beliefs. We must stand strong in our faith, consistent in our walk with Jesus. We must be Christ to all others. He must become greater. We must become less. In our life stories, we are essentially tragic heroes. We sin. We bear the regrettable consequences of our sin, idolatry, and false worship, similar to the time of Ezekiel. In spite of our sin and any lunacy in the culture, Jesus will not abandon us. He is always our example. During his earthly ministry, he did not abandon others. He met people where they were, but he did not allow them to stay there. Jesus lovingly challenged everyone to follow him and to be changed by his countercultural truth. He even prayed for his murderers on the cross. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. Our sin imputed to him on the cross. His righteousness imputed to us who follow him. We must choose not to conform to the ungodly patterns of the world. Rather, we fully yield to the Holy Spirit's work of transforming us into the likeness of the Son. He conquered death and ascended to heaven as our advocate before the Father. We are co-heirs with Christ, with all the rights and privileges thereof. Jesus is the true hero, hero of our stories. Jesus died for our critical spirit. His example actually would not mean anything if he hadn't taken the punishment for our idol worship and the ways we look down our noses at those with whom we disagree. Jesus is the hero of all history, not just because he's our example, but because he's the one who took hell for us. He is the hero of all history, so let's joyfully receive his rescue. That is the gospel, and the gospel changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in the spirit of Philippians, 
chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. I thank my God every time I remember my friends, my friends of Eastside Presbyterian Church. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, God can testify how long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you will be filled, you will be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.